Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. We're still standing after a long stretch of electoral and post-electoral turmoil. The 2020 U.S. election, Peter, followed here and around the world with concern, with enthusiasm, uncertainty, has filled opinion pages and Twitter and hours of broadcast time of what happened and conjectures on what is to come all over the world, headlines, analysts speaking about only this. And as the dust begins to settle, and I say that with fingers crossed, We would like to slow down and focus on what a Joe Biden presidency means for the U.S. and for the rest of the world. We'll be joined soon by Ed Luce from the Financial Times to dive into what the U.S. and the world would look like under a Biden administration. So, Mooney, during the past years of Altamar, you remember that we love to focus on global affairs and we've talked about the retreat of the United States from international leadership. And we've analyzed how Donald Trump's transactional, bilateral, erratic style has reshaped global forces. This phenomenon you know, was well summarized by a book that one of our previous guests just wrote, The Empty Throne, America's Abdication of Global Leadership, that was penned by Evo Dalder. But now, with a decisive but contested win by Joe Biden behind us, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, can the U.S. just sit down and get back right to the head of the table where global decisions are made and take the lead? You know, what's changed in the world and what role is America going to play to shape these pressing issues like climate change, world health, security, international trade, technology? That seems to me the, the, the big question. But let's first break this down further, Peter. We can take a look at Biden's team, his leadership style, his track records on the international sphere. He has a ton of experience. And everything points to a very talented group of people with a multilateral view, a moderate tint, and a rather, I would say, old school desire to solve it all with the U.S. as the helm and working with other countries. And Biden has promised to rejoin the WHO, the World Health Organization, the Paris Accord, to take a stronger role in NATO and deal with with China in a non-transactional style. He promises new relationships with Cuba, return to engagement on issues such as labor and human rights in South America, a climate change-led agenda, and strong positions in the UN Security Council. But I mean, what I really question all the time is, are these promises, which look more like a rewind than a reset, frankly, enough for the U.S. to recapture its seat at the head of the table, which it's so woefully lost? So I got to be honest with you. I mean, I I would say there are a lot of arguments that would point to a resounding no to those questions. And first of all, chances are really high that President Biden will not have a majority in the Senate. And though Trump lost, Republicans did super all right in this election, notwithstanding what happened. And everything would augur that that's not going to begin a new moment of cooperation and achievement. With 71 million Americans having voted for Trump, it's going to be excruciatingly difficult to find a way forward to fix a crippled economy, attack a raging pandemic, fix health care, rebuild U.S. infrastructure that today lags so far behind other countries. Joe Biden is going to have his hands more than full with domestic issues. Yeah, it's true. But I don't know, Peter, that this will be a government of experts. Now, take a minute to just take that in experts for a change. And I'm confident that this administration can walk and chew gum at the same time. Biden has promised a return to order. That's no small thing. A change in tone. Huge. 
and a re-engagement with traditional allies. And I think that he will try to make that happen. And my doubt is different from your question. My doubt and my question is, will Biden experts recognize that Trump has done lasting damage to U.S. international leadership? It's not like snapping your fingers. And they're about to face a vastly different world as well, a world where environmental issues have even more urgency and new advocates and villains, a whole new playing field. Technological leaps have left the U.S. largely behind the curve. We talked to the regulator from the Obama administration. It's a different world. The merits of trade and investment are being questioned, even as the world becomes more interdependent. A lot of uh, isolationism, new alliances have been formed in the Middle East and Europe. The world has kept spinning, and it's hard to believe that a broken, virus-laden, economically vulnerable U.S. will simply pop back into the driving seat and just continue moving forward. I, I think you're right to ask those questions, Mooney. And, and even if President-elect Biden can wrangle Senate Republicans, the world is indeed completely different. In the past four years, China has dominated the world conversation, not just as the leader in global markets, but as a political powerhouse and a military powerhouse in which it has grown in influence and reach. The bitter trade war with the U.S. hasn't deterred China from exerting its leadership in technology and in AI and from making deep inroads into the Arctic, into Africa, into Latin America. America and the steps that a Biden administration takes with regard to China are going to be the first real steps of what his foreign policy is going to look like. And we have talked about most of this at on Altamar, but while the U.S. was just really AWOL, Europe has regrouped. And rumors say that Angela Merkel, now in office for nearly 15 years, has refused to step down while Donald Trump remained in power. So she was staying the course. In the meantime, France and Germany have taken the lead of the EU and advanced in creating a pretty strong regulatory authority with tough positions on tech, on trade, on global relationships. They've definitely come back from a, from a difficult time. The U.S. will find stronger and bolder NATO partners that don't necessarily kowtow to U.S. leadership. And Biden comes to power in a world, Mooney, so filled with hotspots. Oh, my God, the list is endless. Hong Kong, Turkey, Chile, Venezuela, Iran, Egypt, Azerbaijan, the Sahel, on and on and on. And Biden's talented team and his conciliatory style and decades of experience are absolutely essential, but they may not be enough to reshape and repair all the damage that was done by the inconsistencies of the Trump administration. Inconsistencies, that's a very, very mild word. <laughs> well, for once I'm being mild. What do you want me to... <laughs> the challenge is, you know, I, I just think that they're endless. And in the face of the key question, which is, will Joe Biden and his allies be able to return the United States to being a democratic bastion of stability and uncertainty and certainty in a wildly different world? And will this change in tone going to be enough to restore some order? So to help us find answers to these questions, our guest is Ed Luce. Ed is the associate editor of the Financial Times and its chief U.S. commentator and columnist based in Washington, D.C. Before that, he was the Financial Times Washington bureau chief and the South Asia bureau chief based in New Delhi. Welcome, Ed. It's a pleasure to have you back on Altamar. Nice to be with you, Peter and Mooney. You, you've written extensively about the breakdown in America's democracy. How, how bad do you think 
is the damage and how much can Joe Biden, the seasoned, moderate, multilateralist, how much can he repair the damage? Well, look, Biden defeating Trump is a, a necessary but not sufficient condition to start um, repairing the damage. I think the damage goes back way before Trump. Um, and I, you know, I've been saying this for, for many years. Trump is a, a symptom of of the problem um, who, who's made it a lot worse, but it didn't originate with Trump. And I think it would be a mistake for us to think it originated with, with Trump. Um, and I very much hope that when Biden was talking about Trump being an aberration, he didn't mean to say everything was fine before Trump was elected. Um, of course, Biden was part of the administration that for six out of its eight years, the Obama administration um, was unable to get anything substantive done um, because of gridlock, but principally because of Republican obstructionism on Capitol Hill. And my great fear with the Biden administration um, is that he will walk straight back into the same situation with indeed the same Republican Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, as as he experienced during the Obama years. And that, and that will deepen the problem further, is a federal government that's not addressing or not able to address um, the sort of core problems that are, that are alienating so many Americans from, from politics and from any kind of economic optimism. Define what you think are the core problems that have been so sort of, that we've had this stasis about. There's, there's two, two real problems here. One is uh, the economy. We, we're still used to looking at the stock market or to headline GDP growth figures. They don't really capture what most people have been experiencing in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, there's been a hollowing out of, of most people's earnings capacity and bargaining leverage in the labor market. And that means people are, are working harder, often doing lots of part-time jobs without the pension benefits, the healthcare benefits, the in-house training and upgrading that their parents' generation were used to. And that remains true. And that causes a lot of frustration. Um, and that causes a lot of pessimism about their children's prospects, um, particularly compounded by the rising cost of education. So there is that problem which, you know, is serenely ignorant of which administration is in power. Uh, and that's been a trend for, for a generation or more. And then you've got a constitutional problem that gets worse with each election and gets worse with each cycle, which is that a minority of, of states, a minority of the population, rather, through the way that um, votes are apportioned in the Senate and also in the Electoral College, effectively have a veto. Um, over what the majority can do. And that gets worse with each cycle. And it's not an easily resolvable problem because constitutional amendments require three quarters of states to ratify it and two thirds of each chamber. And those states, the North Dakotas of this world, are not going to, they're not going to be turkeys voting for Thanksgiving. They're not going to agree to amend the constitution. So this frustration with the political system gets worse with each cycle. And that in turn, um, that stasis um, prevents the political system from addressing the lack of broad-based growth and inclusion in the economy that is creating so much alienation from politics. This is kind of a vicious cycle.
I mean, you've written two books about decline and, you know, one very pointed at America and the other one is the retreat of Western liberalism. And you've just said Trump was merely a symptom. America's democracy worked for a long time. When did it stop working and why? It hasn't stopped working. I mean, we've just seen we've just seen an election where Trump has been thrown out. It's not really the democracy bit I'm I'm worried about. It's the liberal bit, liberal democracy. Um, the liberal bit is the institutions. So I, I think that this is a has been a gradual process over a period of decades. Um, I think that you can you can pick any sort of one of the three branches and tell and tell a story. But let's take the Supreme Court, the judicial branch, and the fact that. Now, six out of um, nine of the Supreme Court justices are basically subscribers to the originalist doctrine, the originalist legal doctrine, which says that you shouldn't deviate from a word written by um, men in the late 18th century, from the age of the horse. This, of course, is a, a very powerful tool to hold back change. And it gets worse over time because the malapportionment of the Senate gets more pronounced over time. So by 2040, we're going to have basically a third of um, America's population um, selecting 70% of the Senate. Right now, it's, um, it's they're selecting about half the Senate, but it's good. It, it gets worse as time goes on um, because each state gets two, um, two Senate seats. And that then feeds into the selection, the election rather, of the president, that electoral college bias. So there's no one moment where you can put your finger. There are staging posts. Look at Florida 2000. Look at what quite nearly happened in um, in America as a whole in 2020. There are many staging posts on this journey. It's just quite hard to see how that journey is disrupted and sent off in a different direction. Ed, you've described Biden, incoming Biden, as a lame duck president and have referred to some of the reasons in domestic policy. Does that also apply to his foreign policy? And then when you listen to his foreign policy, um, it sounds a lot like the old foreign policy. And even though right now for us, uh, for everyone in the public, just normalizing relations is is a pretty encouraging thought. What do you think of what he's doing? thinking of doing in terms of returning to business as usual? I think he'll, um, he'll, he'll be quite a, an active foreign policy president, certainly not a lame duck one. And I think that relations, you know, with allies, I mean, there are certain very easy things you can do to undo Trump by executive order in foreign and domestic policy, like rejoin the Paris Agreement, like um, rejoin the WHO, like being polite to allies, telephoning them listening to them. You know, what I call the constant gardening of diplomacy is right up Joe Biden's ally. He's a people person. He's into relationships. He's into chemistry. And we underestimate how important that is in in diplomacy. And therefore, I think that that impact will be quite real and it will be quite tangible, even if Biden, you know, is not a particularly innovative or radical or reformist foreign policy president. We, we underestimate just how refreshed America's allies and partners in Asia and across the Atlantic will feel by that, and indeed in the Western Hemisphere. So I wouldn't want to downplay that at all. I think he will find it hard to depart radically from the status quo ante, from the foreign policy 
position of the Obama administration, but I think he will pursue it more effectively, um, notwithstanding his age, just because, unlike Obama, he really does like getting into people. And that, that's, a, that's a very important quality. That for sure. And also he's surrounded himself or will surround himself by a pretty competent team in foreign policy that many of us know. But also many people, including you, believe that there is a lack of a strategic vision in his foreign policy and that what would that strategic vision actually look like if it existed? Oh, that's a very good question. It's easier to criticize the lack of something than to suggest what it is. Look, I think it would, we've, you know, no foreign policy discussion about America in the 21st century can um, really be complete without or um, is worth having unless you're talking about how you deal with China. China is is how you measure strategy. And we've had um, during the Obama years a let's go along to get along strategy with China. That then failed. Then there was a pivot to Asia with a sort of rebalancing of military assets from the Atlantic to the Pacific. That didn't seem to um, change much. In fact, Xi Jinping, on becoming president, moved into a harder line position um, than his predecessors. And now we've got with Trump a sort of throw your toys out of the pram kind of trade war, um, uh, diplomacy by Twitter, um, very roller coaster approach to US China relations, which uh, again hasn't had any impact on China's behavior. So we need um, America and uh, the West in, in general desperately needs a rethinking of, of how you approach China. I think what Biden will do is something that's necessary, which is work with partners and do this multilaterally and do this in groups. That's very important. And that's what, what Obama was doing. But it's clearly got to be more than that. What that looks like in practice, I don't know. I am not the grand strategic brain that I am calling for. Um, but I, but I would I would like to see a larger strategic debate going on. Okay, well let's 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 move in away from strategy and into tactics. So, what do you think the the low hanging fruit is for Biden foreign policy goals that can easily be secured and that he'll want to go after after first? Well, I, you know, Covax is is important. I mean, if, if you if you ask me what his major domestic priority is, and that also has a foreign policy implication, and that is conquering coronavirus, flattening that curve, and developing a system for vaccine distribution affordably, quickly, efficiently. Um, and COVAX, of course, is the international um, body that the Trump administration refused to join. It's there to promote cooperation, to prevent vaccine nationalism. And I think that the Biden administration can and probably will be able to lead the international conversation, or at least be one of the leading interlocutors on how to do this globally as well as domestically. And that is an acutely important tool of foreign policy, arguably the most important. I mean, we can get into, you know, um, weapons of mass destruction and global warming and the rise of China, etc. But what most of the world is thinking right now is, when are we going to get this vaccine? And so, the vaccine diplomacy and vaccine competition that's going on between China, Russia, and the United and and the rest is incredibly important to break through and not leave the impression that Africa basically was saved by China 
or you know um, Central Asia was saved by Putin. There's got there's got to be very constructive ways of dealing with the fact that it's American private sector um, research that's leading the world here, and and it should be made available to the world. Certainly, American foreign policy was hugely successful under President George W. Bush with the PEPFAR and and how much America really really prospered diplomatically because of this assist health assistance to Africa. That's a very good point. I mean, and, th- and this is something that continually surprises people to this day. How popular? I mean, in some parts of a- Africa, George W. Bush is more popular than Barack Obama. Absolutely. Um, so that is a very good sort of micro study, well, on a fairly large scale for a micro study, but it's a very good demonstration effect of what can be done with with the vaccine for coronavirus and what should be done by the next American president. You talked a little bit about China, but what about Russia? What would be the main change that you foresee in U.S. policy with Russia? Uh, I noticed that Vladimir Putin's still not um, recognized. Um, he's still not congratulated President-elect um, Biden. And I guess that's no surprise. This isn't particularly good news for, for Russia. I think that the Biden administration is going to be quite tough on Russia. Um, you know, Biden's got this famous anecdote of when he was vice president. He went to Putin's dacha with him, and he looked him and and looked him and said, "I'm looking into your eyes, Mr. President, um, and I don't see any soul." And Putin replied, "We understand each other." And Biden's quite fond of sort of repeating that anecdote. The sort of policy consequences of that. I think in some cases, surprisingly, not that different to what we have right now, at least formally, because you've got Trump at one level, you know, having private meetings without people taking notes in Helsinki and Hamburg and places. But at another level, you've got a sort of fairly orthodox sort of set of sanctions on Russia. You've got, um, I think, probably Biden picking up on Trump's position on Nord Stream 2 pipe pipeline is like, guys, do you really want to give Russia this stranglehold? You'll have Biden picking up on that. And could you spend more on defense, please? So clearly, it'll be a more unified, consistent, coherent and predictable way of conducting relations um, with Europe and with Russia. But it won't be as radical a departure as you think. Let's move to the Middle East, because in a way, one of the places that he will find most changed is the Middle East, a new agreement between Israel and the Gulf states, a much strengthened Egyptian president. Syria's al-Assad has won the war that when he Biden left office was still in doubt, uh, just to name a few things. And he's a lot of problems in Africa, particularly in the Sahel. Do you see a new activism in the Middle East? Is is Biden going to change? Uh, I think he's already said he's not moving the embassy back to Tel Aviv. But is he? Will he really try to engage on the on the Israeli Palestinian issue, or will he also follow a policy of uh, engaging the Gulf and Saudi Arabia? And what's going to happen with Iran? And then we can move to Africa too. Yeah, I mean, I think the Middle East approach of the Biden administration has to be measured first and foremost by the uh, desire to rejoin JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. That is uh, of you know critical importance to how all these other players, Israel, Saudi Arabia, respond 
to um, the Biden administration. I think if there's one country that should most fear um, this change of administration, it's probably Saudi Arabia, simply because of the closeness of relations between MBS and Jared Kushner and the Trump administration in general with the House of Saud. And that that was clearly unwise on their part to be so associated with with one family. Um, Same mistake that Bibi Netanyahu made, right? I mean... Very true. Uh, same mistake that Netanyahu, but Netanyahu sort of wriggled out of Houdini's situation so many times. I'm sort of, I think he's a past master. I, I think light footprint, no wars of choice. Um, again, a surprising continuity with, with the Trump administration there. And again, done in a far more well-signaled, well-telegraphed and, um, um, you know, highly dialogued manner. You're not going to get, you know, um, whoever the Secretary of Defense at the time resigning because Biden suddenly decided to pull the 2,000 troops out of Syria. That You're not going to get the execution done in that haphazard way. I do think there is a danger that, um, as one ambassador told me recently, um, you know, the Obama administration was all process and, and no outcome, a little bit unfairly, um, since it produced a nuclear deal, and the Trump administration is no process, all outcome because Trump would just decide something. So what I would hope to see from the Biden administration is obviously they should restore process, but they shouldn't worship at the altar of process. Um, you know, there's got to be decisions here. History's moving quite quickly. I have to ask about Latin America as a Colombian, and especially after the Latin vote, the so-called Latin vote was so um, interesting in the past, in the past election. So, Trump is is very be is best friends with Bolsonaro in Brazil, is a frenemy of the president of Mexico, has defined most of his foreign policy using Cuba and Venezuela as cornerstones. Some have been pawns, like I believe Colombia has been stuck in the middle of the Venezuela conversation, etc. That has been the transactional, very personalistic style of Trump, kind of in a in a nutshell. What will change? People in Latin America are frankly nervous about a, a Biden administration coming in and and being more involved in some of the more controversial issues. Uh, it's a very interesting question, you know, in in terms of laggards and congratulating um, and congratulating Biden. AMLO, um, AMLO's a puzzle to me, but he's always been a puzzle to me. I've never, you know, I don't know enough about Mexico to really figure out the nature of his populism. Um, but I think that Bolsonaro is not going to get along with Biden. I think that's probably a given. I'm not even sure whether he will try to get along with Biden or, or vice versa, but they have to because Brazil is a huge a huge economy and it, it's um, a natural partner of the United States. I think that Biden's sort of overwhelming domestic priority in this regard is undoing a lot of the immigration executive orders and, and rule rulemaking of the Trump administration. And Biden, as you know, as vice president, spent a lot of time dealing with the influx of people from Central America. He spent a lot of time trying to sort of secure um, a better compact there with Central Asian economies. And, and I suspect he will try to spend some of that capital to ensure there isn't a new surge in immigration because that could be politically disastrous. The, the, really, it's a question I would throw back to you, though, on how we, how we will deal with, um, how we will deal with the, the Venezuela-Colombia situation. 
I don't think he's given to sort of taking revenge against um, sub-ethnic groups that voted against him in Florida. He's not Trump. Trump might take revenge on people. Biden's um, a very decent person. But I would love to hear from you what the answer to that question is. That's not that's not the way this works. But I'll, I'll take, <laughs> but I'll take a shot. I mean, most people that I've talked to on his team that will work in in Latin America describe him as as what we know. He's a multilateralist. He's um he's conciliatory and he's fair. But most of the concern arises from his emphasis, um, as it was in the Obama administration, on environmental protection that must be worrying you know, Brazil and, and labor uh, and human rights, which um, are, are complications of people of countries like Colombia that have um, free trade agreements. So there's, there's it's a mixed bag. But in general, I think the change in tone in the region will also be welcome. He's also just more interested in Latin America than Trump ever is. I mean, he's been to every country. He knows a lot of the leaders and former leaders. I mean, he's just, just a, it's a region for him that feels very much at home. So let me let me ask you a final question, Ed, which is having gone through now sort of like we, we took a little tour of geography and given all the shortcomings and difficulties that he faces on domestic policy, do you now see a space for a renewed leadership of the United States on the global sphere, not, not only a re-engagement, but a leadership role uh, for the U.S.? To some degree. I mean, the area that a lot of people around the world would like to see leadership on is, is on climate change, because climate change isn't just climate change anymore. Climate change is our economy. Climate change is international relations. Climate change is so much more than just a discrete issue, particularly after COVID. It's changed our focus. But I have to take you back to where we started, which is in order to do more than just symbolically rejoin the Paris deal, you need the Senate to cooperate. You uh, you need to, to get stuff enacted. There's a history of America saying, an American administration saying stuff, but then the Senate shooting it down. The Kyoto deal, of course, being the first, but then, you know, the cap and trade bill that Obama pushed through the House. So... The importance of those two runoffs in Georgia is huge. I, I think the chances that the Dems will win both, which they need to, has got to be relatively low. So if we're left with the 48 or 49 um, Dems in the Senate, Biden's going to have to pull out all his charm, the charm that we were t- discussing, the sort of skill at dealing with people and personal relationships on Capitol Hill too. And I, you know, I wouldn't. Nothing's you, you can't rule anything out. But if we know anything about Mitch McConnell, is he'll kill anything that's got the word tax increase in it. And you cannot deal with carbon unless you put a price on it. Um, and America cannot lead internationally unless it is, and that is, unless it is reforming domestically. So that's that's the sort of great Gordian knot for the sort of future of the world that America in general, and Biden in particular, has to find a way of cutting. Ed Luce, thanks for joining us on Altamar. Interesting discussion. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Muni, it was, it's fascinating, and we took this world tour. But in the end, you know, I come back to what I said in, in our conversation, which is he, he's got this domestic agenda. He's got fish to fry in the domestic agenda. And even though they can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time, unless he shows strength on the domestic side, it's not going to create a resurgence of power and leadership on the foreign policy side. 
It's going to stop the bleeding, Peter, even just the change in tone. And he can do, as Ed reminded us, a few things with uh, just executive orders that are so popular now. And, and there is something that he can do by just rejoining the global conversation. I don't think that the U.S. can expect to be at the head of the table forever. But the head of the table is still vacant. And I think one of the reasons why this might work is because nobody else has taken over. And we've heard that sort of foreign policy towards China and towards Russia is fundamentally going to remain tough and unchanged, but it needs so much rationalism and order now that hopefully, um, assuredly, Biden's going to give. We'll leave you with that. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.